This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Tzfarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Uh, especially, uh, first of all, Ellie for what's already promising to be an extremely well-coordinated uh, trip. And he's, I think he brought uh, Western efficiency to, to places, didn't know what efficiency was, so big yasha kayach for everything until now and how much work you put in. Uh, I'd like to thank my son Yaakov for the work he put into it and for there were many other people behind it. I think David was very involved in uh, being supportive. Uh, and first of all, on a personal note, the, the trip really started as a very personal thing for me. I grew up, my father was from uh, Kovna. He grew up in Kovna, Lutzlabotke. He got married, had children, lived in uh, Kovna. And um, it was very much part of the, the culture I grew up in. I always wanted to come see it. Uh, somebody had promised me to take me on a trip. This was a person who lived there himself, much younger than my father. About a year ago, I, I realized it'll never happen. And uh, Yaakov very much urged to put together a trip like this. So, Yashakayach to everybody for coming and to make the trip possible. Yashakayach. I'd like to speak a little bit of a broader introduction on the meaning of what we're seeing and so on and so forth. I first want to start by saying that Claudius Yisrael had, has or have, has now I could say, three broad focal points for Yiddishkeit. There was Kehila focus, which was typical of uh, Oberland, Germany, Sephardic communities for the most part. Um, and there was one type of focal point. There was the emergence of Hasidus, which focal point was whose focal point was Rebis, Hatseris, and sort of transcended local Kehillas and was focused around the Rebbe movement and so on. That was typical of Poland, Galicia, um, and parts of Hungary, lower parts of Hungary especially. And then you have a third uh, focal point, which was the yeshivas, and that is typical of um, parts of Russia, uh, Lithuania, and uh, vague areas of what's called Belarus and so on. Um, the, the three different focal points, each one has the Milas of Hasronos, um, each one comes with its strengths and weaknesses, and um, for us, even, no matter what our personal heritage was, most everybody here has somehow or other come through the yeshiva world, that has become a, a dominant feature of today's world, even though there is shifting and so on. We'll speak more when we get to each yeshiva about the special yichud of each yeshiva, but briefly, I would like to point out um, three, four tkufas in the development of modern yeshivas. You have Volazhin, which started um, the world of yeshivas in the following way. Until Volazhin was there, Yeshivas were basically um, very personal. The Masha was a rough town, 
he was a big time Chacham, Talmudim came to him, the town, as part of, of taking Mezerov, agreed to support X amount of Talmudim, and he had a yeshiva. They came to learn about a mashah. Mashah died, there was no more yeshiva. The yeshiva was the mashah, like, uh, and, and, and so on. Uh, ne- you didn't have a yeshiva as an institution. It tended to be very local. In the communities that had it, it was sort of a, a educational system for people in the community. It didn't transcend its person, its specific area, and that was what a yeshiva was. If a lodge changed that, and we'll speak more when we get there uh, tomorrow, Mitz Hashem, the was an institution. It transcended the high Volajin. It was meant to last. It was meant for Talmudim far and wide. It was meant to be totally independent of the community it was serving. It was meant to sort of become a dominant force in its own right and not just a way to produce Rabbanim and so on and so forth. That was a first stage in uh, yeshiva, in, in what, what's today what we call yeshiva. Towards the end of the 19th centuries, uh, 19th century, you began to have other yeshivas being founded, and you begin to have a struggle of the Musa system to become part of it. And uh, we might speak more about it in Slavotka, but by and large, it was um, a Rabbi Salat was active in that period of time. His Talmidim, most notably the Alta Slavotka, began to be mashpi on yeshivas, to have Musa in the yeshivas. Kletsk was a very important part of that, we'll speak about it later when we get to it. But I guess the Musa movement, in terms of its influence on yeshivas, it hadn't started as such. Musa Rabbi Salanta vision as part and parcel of um, Kalal Yisrael. Palabatim would have special places to go over Musa and so on and so forth. It was probably Aldous Labotka who recognized that you need to have it become integrated in the yeshiva system. It met resistance for the following reasons. First of all, any other, any new limut to bring into the uh, yeshiva system, people were very suspect about it. They felt it would detract from the learning. It would create a whole nother uh, center, epicenter of, of activity. They were wary of that. The mashkiach became a very, very important figure in the yeshivas. He also began to have an opinion by which Talmidim were not ready to be in yeshiva. Talmidim, whose day as he fell to a wharf, he was not very happy with, and they would throw them out. That brought about tremendous resentment. It was a feeling that there would be a new um, foci of power in the yeshiva. And, and it would be somebody who was not the dominating Torah figure per se, but it was something else. They also began creating a system where Bach and were closer to him and so on, different yeshivas. So you had all of this resistance, and that was typical of the end of uh, the, the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s. World War I broke out in 1914 and it devastated European Jewry. A lot of the Chor Meruchni was due to that. It basically destroyed all the Kehillahs. What happened was the front was 
uh, in most of this part of Europe, and it went back and forth between Germans, Russians, Austrians, and who knows who. And a people did not want to stick around to watch the action; they they'd rather not not be in the in the line of fire. They moved inwards. There was a second reason. The Tsar, in his profound wisdom, reasoned that the Jews might want to go to the Germans. First of all, because Germans were more civilized than the Russians. Secondly, um, they, they were a bit kinder than the Tsar. And uh, he felt that the Jews, speaking Yiddish, had a kinship with them. So the, the Tsar exiled many communities, Alita, into deep Russia. So for five, six years, the shivas were disbanded, destroyed. I mean, there were fragments and segments, and all sorts of bits and pieces, different places. But for five, six years, it was not a natural massive. And when they came back, there were a lot of issues. There were issues of um, getting it together again. It's much easier to break up a place than to start it again. There were issues of personnel. Some people had stayed and ran the yeshiva, and then they were um, not. So when the other group came back, Mibaroish, who has first rights, and so on and so forth, it created problems. But the yeshivas regrouped, and from 1920 to 1940, approximately, was the era of yeshivas when everybody, whatever stories are heard from parents and grandparents about the yeshivas, the yeshiva world, that's the period of time we're talking about. It came to maturity. The great names, the great yeshivas, everything you're familiar with, usually between 20 to 40. Uh, that's the dominant period. The Rosh Hashivas I had, the Rebbeim I had, were from that period of time. The names you've heard the yeshivas were from that period of time. And that's those are basically the four, four broad periods of time of, of the of the what we call the yeshiva world. I want to speak a little bit about the geography. I only spoke about yesterday. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. The first thing is, as Americans, we grow up believing boundaries as being a very fixed entity. And there were colonies in America. Colonies had clearly defined boundaries. They became a country, and American boundaries were all there. Um, they were the, the American boundaries. You know, we grew up that, that the boundaries we recognized were always there, and that's that. Europe had a very, very different uh, feel to it. Uh, boundaries in Europe were meaningless, um, and for many reasons. And I just will just briefly trace some history. First of all, it was very difficult to run a large country when you don't have communications, transportation, or anything of that nature to make it feasible. So, um, to run a country that was large was impossible. Rome was, was an empire for that reason, that they knew how to do it, but it took extraordinary um, brains of, of a certain type to do it. So, Europe basically, especially this part of Europe, was a sort of, it started with little fiefdoms, duchies, um, it started with, then, it, then you started having Grand duchies, um, and a lot of them were the, the center of power was the local, uh, the, the, the local power. They banded together, got a king. Various times, in various places, the king had different amounts of power. 
So countries were kind of very fluid, but the regions retained a lot of their character and, and so on and so forth. Um, as you mentioned yesterday, a dominant, a dominant uh, country, possibly the biggest between, let's say, 1400 to the end of the 1700s, was Poland, Lithuania. They were a commonwealth of two countries. There was the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and Poland. They and what what's called Belarus today was very much part of Lita, and that's who they were. It was part of culturally, and 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 everything else was part of that. At the end of the 1700s, at 1700s, Poland, Lithuania became um, second-class minor league players, and major league players began to take bites out of it. Uh, the major league players were Russia. And Prussia slash Germany and Austria-Hungary and they began to nibble away and in short order by 1795 they had disbanded the entire thing and they had um, swallowed up uh, Russia had swallowed up Lithuania um, much of Poland uh, Germany had taken a bite Austria had taken a bite and they were gone the um, the Polish tried to re revolt a few amount of times back and forth, on and off. But basically, so so this was its own cultural entity of what we would call Lita, but and certainly culturally Lithuania and here were the same, same type of people, same type of mentality, same type of mahaloch. Um, but they were under the Tsar, and that's why all the stories, all the stories in those days speak about the Tsar because that was what it was about. The Tsar was not happy in swallowing so many Jews at that time. It, it really gave him a big stomach ache, and he began to think of what he could do to um, control them, make, the life, make, make their lives a little bit. Um, he, he tried to urge Aliyah to America. It basically, he created what was called a Pale of Settlements, that any of the Jews that he had swallowed can't move out into Russia proper, except with certain exceptions. And that's why when people speak of Russia, all the Jews living in Russia were talking about Belarus, Ukraine, rather than what's Russia proper. There were, there were very, very few Jews in Petersburg and Moscow, Moscow and so on. It was mostly here. This was all in the pale of settlements, more or less. And so what we called Russian Jewry really was here and further up north and so on, but within a certain frame, the vast interior of Russia was pretty much, it did not have many Jews there. Um, during World War One, so um, there was the Russian Revolution. Russian Revolution caused, um, they, they did not allow yeshivas. Um, they clamped down very heavily on a lot of on, on, on everything Yiddish. Of course, so many Jews ran away. Those who stayed basically couldn't raise the next star. What also happened was um, there was a short time when, when Belarus and Lithuania, when they had independence, they then had revolutions, they then joined up the Soviet Socialist Republic, and then Poland decided to take a little nibble out of here and they fought the Russians, they actually won, and they ended up with a big chunk of here. So all the so-called Litvish yeshivas 
between 1920 to 1940 were technically in Poland, including Vilna and and Mir and Klesk, Baranovich, all of those Kemat were technically Poland. You, you couldn't be in Russia and have a yeshiva that was gone um, because they did not allow it. And Lithuania had lost a big chunk of itself to the Poles. The Poles were much better fighters and uh, took a big bite out of Lithuania. You also couldn't travel from Lithuania to Poland. Um, they, they had no relations, no diplomatic relations. You had to go through another country entirely. You couldn't go with this passport. So if so that you had for those 20 years, there actually was a certain bifurcation of the proper Lithuanian yeshivas, which are only four of them, Slabotka, Kel, which was tiny, we'll maybe talk about it at some point, Panovich, um, and Telz. They were what's called Lithuanian proper, what was Lithuania all along, um, but that was it. They were cut off from where most of the people were, which was this area, which was Belarus. So, so th if you'll take a look at, at the documents, the, from 20 to 40, the, all the literature yeshivas have Poland on it because that's where they came from. But it was culturally in, in very, very different. Um, the, culturally, the Lithuanian Jews the, 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 uh, were, I guess, you know, it's hard to be a stereotype, but you have, um, they were much more calm than Polish or Hungarian Jews. Uh, or Ukrainian, they tended to be more, um, you know, cerebral. They, they, you know, things of uh, learning was important for that reason. They looked down at the, at the emotional sentimentality of Hasidim. They, they were very different. They were a lot more reserved and so on. Hasidus did make some impact on Russia, which again, Belarus means Russia, basically for for, for, for Hasidus. Uh, like he said, it's called Hasain, and Hasain and Wusi Alevana. The, um, uh, the, the three Hasidus that managed to penetrate, for better or for worse, was Chabad, which took on a very, very, um, it, it took on, the mentality was much more Litvish, Learning was the most important element, restraining your emotions, focusing it with your mind. It, it was that was very clear that um, Karlin was was a was a, 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 a Hasidist that was a Belarus Hasidus. Um, and finally uh, there was also Slonim, which was Baranovich actually was for those years, for 2040, that was the center of of, of Slonim Hasidus, the Hashuvim or Baranovich. They all of them, but certainly Slonim and Chabad had a very, very strong Litvish character. And they were different, you, you very clearly, recognizably different. Um, another just interesting point that it's not clear why it's called White Russia, Belarus, but if you look at the trees over here and the bark is white, um, the, the, I forgot the name of the tree, you would know probably the name of the tree. That, that's one guess, if you'll see these, these are ubiquitous, these trees. Um, that's one reason why you might call White Russia. But Akhoponim, um, as far as we're concerned, Belarus and Lita proper are what we call Lita. In, for, for culturally, it's the cradle of the yeshivas. 
and um, each yeshiva had its own special um, characters and characteristics that we'll speak about when we get to each yeshiva, Bez Hashem. But that's why it's very important today. And today, because there's a sort of an intermingling of different cultures, everyone's borrowed from the other, it has made the literature learning and style has made inroads in the Siddhisha world, Chassidus has made big inroads in the literature world, Kehillah is an upmerging topic. But, but I can talk. One more, one more point of note, and again, I, Ellie touched on it briefly yesterday. If you'll notice, the yeshivas were all in hick towns. Um, the reason was, there were a few reasons. One reason was, big cities had a way of having much distraction. There's very little to distract you in a hick town, and therefore everything's focused on yeshiva. You come to a big city, there's a lot going on, and therefore um, it was felt that it's a very poor place to make yeshiva. Two, the lit, the, the, the jury in the big cities had become less and less observant as time went on. The inroads of the Haskalah, of the Bund, they tended to focus on big cities. You had cultural centers, you had universities, theaters, operas, libraries. You were able to get critical massive groups together, and therefore there was a lot of hashpahs coming in the big cities. So that was something negative. Also, in the big cities, you had a lot of politics with different killers around him, and getting into a big city would mean you would have political issues and, and you would be walking possibly a minefield. And third, fourth, small towns were able to support yeshivas in many ways. Um, in the early days when people ate by townspeople, they felt a sort of a kinship. They looked out for the and they rented rooms. We'll, we'll see as we talk about it later, but it was much, it was feasible in a small town. People tried to make yeshivas in the big cities. They were short-lived. Um, Minsk had on and off, Lolach, and um, Kovna did not have, they had a kolo, Slavotka is a suburb, and it's clearly away from it. Um, what? Yeah, but, 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 but it was also it was on and off. It, it, it's Vilna it wasn't able to pull it off. All, all the big cities never had a yeshiva for all the reasons we spoke about before. And Lakewood supposedly was one of the reasons why I went there. It's not clear. I mean, he had to get a building there. There was there waiting. Um, whatever his dreams were having in a small town, there, there are chilukideas if that's still true today or not. We can ask the Lakewooders here what they think about it. But the yeshiva's krachen was, was kasha. That's why they, they kept yeshivas away from big cities. Um, Slonim did not have one, Baranovich did have one, and so on. If you take a look at the history, that's that's where it went. Alkoponim, um, so that, that's sort of an overview of um, where we came from. In, in other words, almost everything that we have today, we know that it came from there. And Ben Sashem will speak on each yeshiva, we'll try to speak more specifically about the people there.